Hey, Emma, do you consider yourself a good mother? Golly, Mokes, that's a leading personal question. I hope so. Why? What have you heard? <laughs> well, I've been reading about an excellent school they can always ship us off to for our re-education, if needs be. Hello, and welcome to season two of Fanfare, a fortnightly flight of fancy in which we plan imaginary dinner parties for cultural luminaries and their dream guests. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, an author and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. By popular request, this will be a whole season of dinner parties, and we have some truly exciting guests coming on, both real and imagined, don't we, Emma? Do we ever. Jasmine Chan is an American novelist and the author of The School for Good Mothers. A New York Times bestseller and a searing dystopian page turner, The School for Good Mothers uses dark, dark, dark humor to explore the pains and joys of the deepest ties that bind us. That's taken straight from her website, but I think it's quite good. Jessamine went to Brown and then moved to New York City to do her MFA at Columbia. The School for Good Mothers was Chan's debut novel, and it was published earlier this year by Simon & Schuster. It begins with her protagonist, Frida, having a very, very bad mothering day. The dystopian nightmare that follows chilled us to the bones. Jasmine, hi! Hi, Emma. Hi, Monica. Thank you for having me over. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's an honor to have you. You're joining us from Chicago, correct? Yes, I'm joining um, joining you from suburban Chicago from Oak Park, Illinois. And you've just come from the school drop-off, is that right? I have just come from school drop-off. I've done my best with my hair and put on some lipstick for you. That's fantastic. You look great. And that gives us you lots of time to plan tonight's dinner. So it's it's important to start prepping early when you have a Nobel laureate coming. But first of all, I want to talk about you. Your life must be pretty wild at present. We'd love to hear all about it. We both absolutely loved the School for Good Mothers. We thought it was breathtaking and it kind of hit us in a pretty tender spot because we both have young children it's it's really like it, it was kind of like a smack, especially the first few chapters. I I didn't find it to be an easy read, which I don't I don't imagine it was intended to be. But it, it's a real jolt, and I recommend it to to everyone, mother or not. Thank you so much. My life is both very exciting and very mundane at the same time. Like I'm I'm about to go to two festivals in Canada at the end of the month, and then two weeks later I'm going to England for an event in London and a festival. So so when I'm not traveling, I'm here busy with parenting, doing a lot of laundry and paying bills and stuff. And then occasionally I get to leave the house and do very exciting things. Am I allowed to ask, are you working on more writing right now or when you have moments when you're not doing laundry? I'm happy to say I have finally started thinking new fictional thoughts. It's probably going to be a long time before I can say what it's about. And I'm one of those people who's ridiculously superstitious about writing. You know how some authors are very open, like this is how my writing went today and we'll post it on Twitter, like how many words Mm -hmm. they, they wrote and like how many chapters they revised. I'm probably the opposite of that, where 
I will hopefully emerge in a few years and say, look, it's done, (laughs) and then not talk about the process till then. I completely understand that. There's a gorgeous bookshelf behind you. Are you in your study right now? I am in my study. That is the part of the bookshelf that is tidy. The less tidy part is over here, but it's very exciting to have an office and a true like Virginia Woolf room of one's own. And I've been really excited to fill the bookshelf with a lot of books from friends and other books that have come out in the past couple of years. I've I've never bought more books than since the pandemic started. And your New York Times bestselling book is there on the shelf. I do spot it. What's it like having your first novel be so successful? It's amazing. It's really beyond comprehension most of the time. I'm honestly I I don't think about it on a day-to-day basis. Like occasionally I think about it and feel totally overwhelmed. I just turned 44 in August and I've been writing since I was 18 like like slowly working toward this goal of a first book and so the fact that it actually happened is still mind-boggling in a lot of ways and it's it's really incredible to meet readers and to hear how the story has impacted them I mean I learned on Twitter that there's a professor at the College of William and Mary who used my book as an inspiration for a new course on bad mothers in literature. Oh, wow. That's that's like beyond what you can hope for with your first book. And I know that some some sociologists who study the the child welfare system have reached out to say that like this book was really meaningful to them. And they felt that it represented the experience of of families who've who've dealt with this tragedy in a meaningful way. And that's that's been really incredible. Congratulations. Monica mentioned that it wasn't an easy read, and that's true. And I seriously doubt it was an easy write. Okay, so let's start thinking about dinner. Jessamine, who have you decided to invite as your special guest? this evening. So if I could choose anyone, I would love to invite Kazuo Ishiguro to dinner, who's one of my my writing idols. Just to back up for a second, for context, Kazuo Ishiguro, or in full, Sir Kazuo Ishiguro, is a Japanese-born British novelist known for his lyrical tales of regret fused with subtle optimism. In 2017, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he's also been nominated for the Man Booker Prize four times, I believe, and he won it for The Remains of the Day. His novels include Never Let Me Go, The Remains of the Day, A Pale View of the Hills, and most recently, Clara and the Sun. He also writes music and is a cinephile apparently. And we are very much looking forward to having him join us for dinner. What is it about his writing that, if you had to pinpoint it, what do you love about his writing? The book that was really a touchstone for me in writing The School for Good Mothers is uh, Ishiguro's novel Never Let Me Go, which I first read in grad school back in 2008. And I, I reread it a couple of times as I was revising my novel. And it's a book that has haunted me ever since I, I first read it. And what I wanted in my novel was beyond telling this, the story of a mother's journey to get her to try to get her child back was to capture a mood and to leave readers with a certain mood. And I think what I loved most about Never Let Me Go is the, the sense of elegant foreboding throughout. And you get a real sense of the place and you, you get the sense that 
there's a tragedy unfolding, but it's it's very subtle. And I, I love the world building that he does. Like it's it's very close to our world, but just with a few elements that are off. That's absolutely true. And one thing that really struck me, I so I read Never Let Me Go for the first time very recently. I've had it on my shelf for a long time and I've been saving it for just the right moment. And bizarrely, before you told us that you were bringing Ishiguru to dinner, Sir Ishiguru, Monica said to me, have you read Never Let Me Go? Because I'm reading it right now and it's it's my little brother's favorite book. And I had just been staring at it on the shelf thinking, I think now is the time. So we read it together kind of in tandem recently and have not yet talked about it. I was actually supposed to be reading something else to prepare for another episode of this podcast and I just could not put it down. I found it like your book kind of shocking and breathtaking and you just need to figure out what the heck is going on in this like almost real parallel universe. It's obviously an enormous story and a, you know, a profound Mm -hmm. commentary on our culture and the moral questions posed by science and medicine. And, but the, tight, narrow, zoomed-in world of this friendship between specifically the two young women and how tender it is and how she's you're analyzing kind of the most minute. It's like, it reminds me of my conversations with you, Monica, and the fact that, you know, first of all, that a man wrote this, and second of all, that the whole world kind of read this and said, yes, this is it. This is literature. Makes me so happy because it's, you know, it's about female friendship, really, to me anyway. Of course, Tommy is important too, but, and it's about love and it's about a lot of different things. But the friendship at the core of the story between those two young women, one of whom is, you know, immensely flawed. They both are, but Ruth in particular. So Jessamine, can you tell us about, so you said you read it in grad school? I first read it in grad school, and I think when I've talked about the book, and I w- I'm not sure that I would say this to Sir Ishiguro himself, but I think what struck me over the years was even if I could not remember the exact storyline, and I wouldn't be able to give you the logline for the book necessarily, I could tell you a lot about the feelings it evoked in me. I could picture the, the school, I could picture like the colors and the 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 emotional mood was was something that stayed with me like the 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 reading experience really stayed with me over time was this the first of his books that you've that you read yes and i i did catch up on um books like remains of the day and I read Clara and the Sun, and I remember, my, so my book was originally supposed to come out in 2021, and Clara and the Sun was coming out in spring 2021, and I I was thinking, oh no, like, like I'm going to have to compete with like the master and then my and then my book um got moved to January 2022, and then it turned out Clara and the Sun was very different. So, so that was like, phew, relief. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I wanted to ask how you felt about remain the remains of the day, which is arguably, you know, I had actually somehow in my context it felt like the more famous of the two novels, and and it definitely was the one I had heard of first. But I and 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 I do love it just as much. But it's, there, I mean, there's similarities, but it's quite different. How do you feel about the remains of the day? You know, I think Never Let Me Go will probably always be my my favorite. I mean, I'm I'm open-minded for the the novels that come, but what I love about his work is how different each book is mm. and he definitely is just willing to to test whether readers will go along with him. I'm I'm sure the Nobel helps with the ability to do that, but I I love that his his novels over the course of his career um have such range. 
They really do. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Merchant Ivory adaptation of The Remains of the Day? You know, I have not seen that, and I have not seen the Never Let Me Go adaptation either, but I, I, I'm very curious about it. So to prepare for today's interview, I started watching The Remains of the Day, the adaptation, last night. I'd read about it. I'm a huge Emma Thompson fan, and so I knew mm. about it as one of her earlier films, and of course, you know, it's a very famous film that people absolutely love, but I wasn't quite prepared, I don't think, for how gorgeous it would be. Mon, have you seen it? Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. I mean, Hopkins is extraordinary. And there's Christopher Reeve playing the American guy. And the young Hugh Grant. There's a young Hugh Grant who turns out to be a very important character and obviously is dashing, among other things. And no, no, it's, it's, but, the, but the performances by Thompson and um, Anthony Hopkins are pretty breathtaking. And also, what you know, remains the day in a way is sort of different. It's not a parallel dystopia universe. It's based on things that actually went on between the wars in Britain. I'm pretty sure Lord Darlington is based on um, Sir Oswald Mosley who was a Nazi sympathizing aristocrat. And it's almost as spooky as uh, what goes on in Never Let Me Go. So it's such a, it's so sumptuous. It's such a sumptuous film, right? Like it's set in this unbelievably glorious Darlington Hall is this gorgeous kind of Downton Abbey-esque estate. And there's this hunt scene at the beginning that, Mm. you know, must have cost a penny, (laughs) even though it was the 80s. And the meals that are put on during this multiple day conference that they're hosting at the house and all of the the kind of decadence of that time Mm. is such a contrast with Never Let Me Go and the students who are huddled under bits of carpet and curtain to stay warm in the cottages and, you know, the kind of Spartan life that's represented in Never Let Me Go. And Ishiguro was a social worker before he became a full-time novelist. And actually he worked on the problem of homelessness uh, in London and elsewhere. And and his wife is, is also a social worker. So I think it's interesting. And he's actually written a really interesting, a screenplay that was published in Granta that sort of is send up of modern day or from, you know, 80s decadence around like people, gourmands and people who, you know, are obsessive about food and about consumption. And, you know, it seems to me, I I don't know, we'll have to ask him, but it seems to me that the type of life uh, represented in the remains of the day, the inequality of that period, and of course, it's only exacerbated now, is something that is deeply disturbing to the author. That's definitely something I'd like to ask him about. And that will relate to our menu. I'm pretty darn nervous about cooking for Sir Ishiguru. Never, never, never Yeah, I was going to say, are you going for like a kind of upstairs, downstairs approach to um, to the cooking or are we going for (laughs) a more equal rights, equal opportunities approach to the food? And also, are we going for a British approach in his adopted country or I mean, I mean, the questions are endless. Right, because we know that we grew up, he grew up in Britain from the age of five or six and lived there. Didn't, didn't even go back to Japan, the country of his birth, for about 30 years. But I believe spoke Japanese at home with his family and 
so certainly kind of participated in both cultures to an extent, but was raised more as you know an Englishman, but with Japanese heritage. And so I, I'm not going to go with upstairs downstairs. I'm definitely not going to try and put on a Darlington Hall okay. smash sensation with footmen. And no, I don't think that would appeal, nor am I capable of that. Jessamine, do you agree? How do you think we should approach this dinner party? You know, I I had to confess to you as we were talking about planning this party that I am not the cook in my house. <laughs> I'm I'm a very capable sous chef and I'm great at washing dishes, but I I tend to let my husband do most of the cooking, but I I wanted to ask are we serving drinks? Great question. I think we should serve drinks. Yeah. It's a good icebreaker. I mean a gin and tonic. Classic? A British classic before dinner. Why not? I feel like with a Nobel laureate, maybe we should add champagne cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you're thinking. To indicate the fanciness of, of hosting him. I think you're absolutely right that we should start with champagne. That's a good point. And then, Emma, what did you have in mind? For, was, there, was there an amuse-bouche, an appetizer? Are we going straight in? That's a really great question. We definitely need to have an amuse-bouche. For an amuse-bouche, how are we going to amuse our bouches? I mean, one of my favorite amuse-bouche, I want to go simple, elegant but simple. So how do we feel about radishes with some butter and salt? That's one of my favorite things to serve. Crunchy, good with the champagne, some really good olives and some Scottish oat cakes. I feel like this is worthy of Darlington Hall. I'm just going to throw it out there. No, 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 no. We're going to be chill. We're going to be chill. I feel like we're trying not to be pretentious, but I don't know. No, it's not pretentious, but it's it's fancy. Here's where I'm going to show the love. I'll make the oat cakes. How about that? Because one of my favorite aspects of British food is Scottish oat cakes. <laughs> And I've actually made them. I included a recipe for vegan Scottish oatcakes in the Greenhouse Cookbook because I like them that much. So I do think... Oh, there you go. You're very good at them. They're so good. We should make some serious, like really nice rough oatcakes and a bit of cheese. To I mean, this isn't France, so I think we can have the cheese as part of our amuse-bouche. What do you think? I think so. I think we can have cheese with drinks at the beginning. And then I was thinking, because it's autumn and there's a lot of delicious produce that comes with this season we should do i want to go vegetarian i don't know i just have a feeling that that's right what do you guys think is he a vegetarian not that i've seen but just i kind of default to vegetarianism sometimes we could all stand to be more vegetarian i'm sure right like i think he'd appreciate a plant-based feast and there's this really delicious butternut squash hasselback so it's like really beautiful and it's a showpiece you kind of I'll show you an image and I'll include it in the show notes but it's like cut on the bias and it's really gorgeous and I could glaze it with maple and do some Fresno chilies and just make like a really gorgeous kind of main event of a fall squash that was perfectly caramelized and serve that with my favorite miso glazed eggplant, Nazudengaku, a complete classic. Um, so Japanese eggplant, it's so good. So we've got a nod to his Japanese heritage. There's not a lot in terms of Japanese cooking that I feel like I could do any kind of justice to, but I feel pretty confident in my Nazudengaku skills. Yeah, yeah, I'll second that. Your sous chefs are here to help. <laughs> Uh, and then like a sesame spinach, like that beautiful blanched spinach that's served with like a nice sesame dressing and some sesame toasted sesame seeds. 
What do you guys think of that? That's awesome. I would only add, uh, perhaps this would be something that I would procure rather than making you um, do this. I think I would bring him some bright blue food to give him with a copy of my book <laughs> inscribed to him just as a fan. He would I've eventually understand the joke later on. I think that's a great idea. I'm sure he's read your book. You know, I bet he's busy. <laughs> so I, I would love to think so, but I have a feeling he gets sent every book written in the English language in the whole world. Yeah, but there are comparisons in the press. I'll say this so you don't have to. Your book has been like really compared to, there was a quote in Wired that I sent Emma actually. Oh, I love the Wired piece. I, I love that, that write up. The Wired piece, I was like, yes. I mean, I don't know because I don't know what your intentions were because I'm not actually the author of your book. But I, I love that write-up. And I wasn't, for some reason, this is going to sound horrible, but I wasn't expecting to find it in Wired. We will link to this in the show notes, by the way, if you're wondering what I'm on about. I'm really blessed with a lot of the write-ups for my book, but I, I especially love the the piece in The Atlantic and the the piece in Wired. Like, I, I really loved um, those interpretations. In Wired, they say that kind of there's like a natural, perhaps, uh, tendency to compare your book to The Handmaid's Tale. And while that's legitimate, actually, this kind of the universe, the dystopia in your book is actually more readily compared, comparable to Never Let Me Go, basically. Anyway, I'll we'll link to it in the show notes and everyone should go read it after this. But let's get back to our dinner party planning because he's going to show up. And we've got to get ready. Ishiguro is a jazz songwriter and he loves Bob Dylan. Okay. So what music are we playing here? Are we going to make a playlist? We are definitely going to make a playlist that we'll link to in the show notes. When I read that he loves Bob Dylan, I was very inspired. Like, I think Blood on the Tracks, Blonde on Blonde. Like, I think we could really set a good tone with some, some Bob Dylan on vinyl. Do you think people who love Bob Dylan also love Joni Mitchell? <gasps> yes, I do think so. And I think we should play a lot of Joni Mitchell. For me, my when I listen, the phase of my life when I listen to a lot of Bob Dylan, I also listen to a lot of Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen. When was that phase? You know, it's it's very embarrassing to admit, and I would have to uh, strike this from the record of my conversation with Sir Ishiguro, but I used to listen to a lot of music, and then I moved to New York in 2008, and I think I found the city so overstimulating that when I got home, I just didn't listen to music. So I, I'm the only person in the world with no music on my iPhone. And I, I really just need, and my husband is a musician and yeah, I, I have to get back to it. Oh, your husband's a musician. My, my husband's a documentary filmmaker, but he, he's been a musician all his life. And so there's a reason for me to listen to music again, but I'm, I'm a bit behind, but I, I think one of my, my favorite concerts that I went to was Leonard Cohen in Madison Square Garden. So I, I think I would sneak some Leonard Cohen into the playlist too. Do you have a favorite Leonard Cohen song? I think there's one called The Traitor where I think Martha Wainwright does a really amazing cover of it. Agreed. Okay, we have our vibe. Where is this dinner taking place? Well, it's an imaginary dinner, so we can be anywhere in the world. Oh, Notting Hill, where he met his wife. That'll bring back some nice memories. 
So I think we have to start looking for an Airbnb because none of us have a place in Notting Hill as far as I know. I used to live there. I've also never been there, so this will be a good occasion. Oh, perfect. It's my favorite neighborhood in London. I, I'm a bit FOMO about Darlington Hall, but I guess I've accepted that we're not mm. going to Darlington. We're going to be in the city. But London's a nice vibe for dinner parties. The Brits love dinner parties, so we can do it there. We'll have to get an Airbnb, or maybe I can um, talk one of our uni friends into letting us crash. If we tell them about the guest list, they might be willing to open their doors. Emma and I went to university in the UK, so we we got a couple friends on the ground. They'll be well-behaved. They'll be on their best behavior. Should anyone else be joining us, do you guys think? Or are we going to monopolize Surishiguru? Also, are we are we keeping our children up late and will our children be attending? Or do we need to find childcare for this event? <laughs> I think we need to find childcare. I think we might need to find childcare. Or we can put them upstairs in front of the Merchant Ivory adaptation of The Remains of the Day. They'll love that. Yes, they'll be like terrified. Um, or we can put them to bed and then have dinner. Mm, a late dinner. That's true. We'll feed them their meal, put them to bed, and then we're having a late dinner. It's going to be very fancy. They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I can florals? do Florals? For spring. Groundbreaking. Monica, what are you going to wear to this to this late dinner? Well, I mean, it's going to be fancy in that we're very excited about the guest list, but actually I'm not planning on dressing up as much as I do to some of our dinner parties because it just doesn't feel right, especially in the kind of like intimate Notting Hill flat setting. My idea for this, I was thinking about it a little bit. I love Emma Thompson's style in The Remains of the Day. She's not trying hard. She's the housekeeper in this grand house and she's very demure. And then I also think that there's like a very interesting kind of shabby preppy British boarding school look to Carrie Mulligan and Kira Knightley's characters in the Never Let Me Go adaptation as well. Both films are actually quite stylistically interesting, like both from a cinematographic and fashion point of view. So I feel like we can kind of take our main inspiration from Emma Thompson, but have maybe you know, some preppy kind of schoolgirl-ish looks. It's it's kind of a similar look. It's a sort of shabby, chic, British, preppy, short hair like Emma Thompson. And maybe it's peeking out from under a beret when you arrive. We've got a trench coat, an old trench coat or an old tweed coat thrown over top. And we can throw it off when we get in from the rain and have a nice collared blouse and a lovely sort of kilty skirt, which is actually very on trend. And if you throw in a pair of ankle socks and loafers, which is very on trend at the moment, you've got a look. What do you guys think? Is it OTT? Is it kind of like dressing too much like his characters or can we can we give it our own twist? Obviously, Jasmine and I will be wearing our large oversized frames as well. We're both in like, we're in cool nerd glasses, I would say, reading glasses. We have to wear our matching glasses. I, I support all of your sartorial choices. Jasmine, please, can you tell us more about your, we were talking before we started recording about your fashion journalism 
career, your future fashion journalism career. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm bringing you in. So my my greatest dream since childhood was to be a, a fashion journalist. I was telling Monica, I'm like, that's that's the job I've always wanted. Tell me about it. So I I really look forward to the day where someone wants me to write a personal essay about fashion. But right now, everyone wants me to talk about moms, and I'm happy to do that. But I just want to put it out there. I'm here to talk about fashion and beauty products and all that stuff too. What about mom fashion? It's a genre. Mom fashion is a genre. I am a a definite caftan devotee. And I would say for Sir Ishiguro, I would take a break from my caftans and I think I would wear a pantsuit. So last year I got a pair of black cigarette pants from Sandro and I got them hemmed and they were all ready. And then I ended up not wearing them at all because of Omicron and a, a lot of my events going oh, to Zoom. No. So I, d- I did my tour mostly from home in sweatpants with like a blouse on top. But I just got the matching blazer, partly because I'm coming to England for the Cheltenham Festival, where some of the events are in gigantic auditoriums. And I thought, you know, now might be a good time to become a pantsuit wearing person. So I think I would wear the new black pantsuit for Sir Ishiguro with a nice pair of heels. Although I'm tempted to wear my true 90s vintage chunky heeled loafers that I have from high school still that I that I've saved all this time like they're vintage from 1993 from my own closet. Yes. That'll look amazing with the tra- the with the pantsuit, I think. Oh, and with the chunky glasses. And the chunky glasses. And lipstick. Are we wearing lipstick, guys? It depends what the state of masking is in the world at that point. I have discovered that red lipstick and masks tend not to mm. go that well together. But if there, if there's time to come in and do a touch-up, I think I'd put some red lipstick on because that, that tends to brighten up the glasses and dark hair and dark clothes. I love it. And Mon, to your point about Emma Thompson in The Remains of the Day, I was fanning out so hard about the outfit that she's wearing where there's kind of, it's like a close fitting calf length dark skirt. I can't tell whether it's black or navy with perfect tights. You know how I love tights and very shiny, like super discreet and subtle loafers. And then just like a really neat and tidy cardigan. There is definitely shabby chic for for Never Let Me Go, but like zero shabbiness in Emma Thompson. No in the remains of the day. It is all just, I've never been able to look finished in any way at any point in my life. And she just looks so, as you know, as is befitting a perfect, extremely talented housekeeper, she just looks so polished and so finished in every single, and the little wave in her short hair. And I I think she even has a bow at one point, like a little demure, which is a good foil for her kind of like, she doesn't let Hopkins Stevens get away with much. You know, she's a pretty on the nose type of character. So it's so funny to see this little demure bow. And I love it because she pulls it off even though she's kind of dressed like a little girl. And at one point you get, they don't tell you how old she is, but at one point there's the young maid who's running off with her young lover, much to Emma Thompson's dismay. And she says, oh, well, she couldn't possibly understand. She's old to her boyfriend. And he's like, old? And she's like, yeah, I mean, she's got to be at least 30. <laughs> and you got to think, yeah, she looks about 30, 32. So she she kind of elevates this look. It's like she takes that kind of more remains of the day look and spiffs it up as per the housekeeper in this grand house would do. And it works really, really well. So I think we've got our look. We've got our inspiration. I love the pantsuit for Jessamine. Even that shirt that you're wearing, that lovely white collared shirt, Emma, is going to look great under a cardigan. I think you've got all the material. Muji. And I 
Now, we need to figure out, I just feel like we want this to go smoothly from the beginning. So, Jasmine, what's your opening line for him? Oh, that's that's hard. I think I was planning to let you guys start <laughs> talking first. You are the host and I'm just tagging along. So, I think I think I was I was hoping that you would do the icebreaker, but I'm I'm sure I would be a true fangirl and just talk about how much his work has meant to me. I mean, I get the impression that even for very very famous people, I love your work is is something that does not get old. Yeah, I can't imagine that it does. If you eventually got to chatting with him, you've had a a glass of wine. What are the kind of burning questions you'd like to ask him? Is there anything that comes to mind? I'm sure I would ask about Asian families. I'm sure I would ask for some parenting advice because I think his children are grown and people with grown children always have a lot of parenting advice and I'm sure his would be very interesting. I would love to talk about the spooky children from his book and the spooky children from my book. Mm. And if if we had a true imaginary dinner party, those are some of the imaginary guests that I would invite. That <laughs> we could have a, a whole separate table of the spooky children. A kid's table. In that case, our kids are coming. Yeah. <laughs> Emma, what would you like to ask him? The question I'd like to ask him is is very gauche and I would never ever have the courage to actually ask him. So I'm gonna ask you guys instead. Impossible love, of course, not to be too spoilerish, but comes up in both the remains of the day and never let me go and in the school for good mothers. And I, I just wondered whether one thing that I found profoundly sad in never let me go was that I always felt and maybe this was just me. So I want to know if you guys agreed, but I always felt that Tommy didn't love Kathy nearly as much as Kathy loved Tommy. And of course, in, you know, in some ways, it's more beautiful, perhaps, to love than to be loved. Like there's something so incredible about the act of loving. And you can tell that Kathy, it deepens her character and it improves her life. You know, these extremely tragic lives that these characters are living are enhanced by love. And I just wondered whether you guys as readers, and then I would love to know whether Suresh Guru as, as the author, felt that Tommy did love Kathy. And if so... What the heck? I would love to hear his answer to that question. I would also chime in to say that I don't think characters can ever love each other equally in a novel because then there would be no drama. I know. Like the, I think there there always has to be an unequal love. That's where the the stuff of story comes in. Cuz like people people can never be happy for more than a couple pages. No, no, it's true. It's true. Even if disaster is coming, whether they love each other or not. Ruth has a strong enough character that she could have kept them apart, I think, even if we had a little bit Mm -hmm. more of a sense that Tommy knew how much he was missing out on. I don't get enough of a sense that he knows what he's missing out on with Kathy. Like he's, he's just too happy to kind of coast. And then later when he denies her the opportunity to care for him at the end, I do understand that. And that is a version of love, perhaps. But it's just so agonizing. So I want to ask him about that. I think that's a great question. And actually, I guess, Jasmine, out of that, like for you, you know, obviously 
you've created your characters. <laughs> I'm sure that some of them kind of came to you, but when people ask you questions about your characters' motivations and like, are you able to fully answer for their actions, do you think? Or is that even a fair thing to ask? Like with someone like Frida and the decisions that she makes in life, you know, are you, yeah, I guess how kind of in control of Frida do you feel now? And, and what's your relationship like with her? Well, one thing I've been talking about, and I would be curious to see how Sir Ishiguro answers is, I find that talking about writing and trying to explain it as a process is so different than actually doing the writing. Because when I'm actually creating, I truly do not think about theme, intention, political stakes, what people might think about it later. And that has come in like years later when we're uh, preparing for the tour and press and marketing and stuff like that. So hmm. a lot of the choices that I made in the book were, were just by gut instinct and what I felt like doing. And so I, I would say I'm maybe not the easiest person to edit or have a marketing brainstorm with because the the answer is often like, oh, it's what I felt like doing or it's what felt right to me. And, and it would be really helpful if I had an explanation to go along with that too. So I think I am able to talk about the characters and what I was trying to do. But I for me, I'm also telling you a story about it that is is something that I'm I'm putting on onto the process now, like with hindsight. And it's it's not necessarily something that I, I thought about at the time. So I can tell you now that I, I did make Frida really intentionally flawed. And I, I did choose to have her do something truly bad at the start of the book rather than something innocuous. Right. And I mm -hmm. feel like without doing total spoilers here, we can probably kind of talk about the fact that your main character has a really bad parenting day, makes a really bad parenting choice on paper at the very beginning of the novel. Did I read that you had read an article about someone that had their child taken away that had done something similar? Am I making this up? Because I was wondering if this is like, because I, I, as I read these early chapters, I sort of thought, God, what an interesting concept, because we all have days with what, young children. Like if child services are listening, I would obviously never leave my child by herself. But what I'm saying is you do almost think like, has every young mother felt this frustration? You can relate to it so hard. It's sort of visceral. And you think no matter how much you love your child, like I think you're a real hero for, you know, running with that idea and seeing where it can go and seeing how a society would react to it and exploring it. No, I, I'm so glad that resonated with you. I, I will say I started the book back in 2014, oh, wow. years before becoming pregnant and in a very different political climate, a different point in America. Mm -hmm. And one thread of inspiration was my deep ambivalence about having a baby. And I, I felt really, really, really freaked out about it. And I dealt with that anxiety by starting a dystopian novel. Not everyone deals with their maternal <laughs> ambivalence that way, but that's what helped me. And the other big thread of inspiration was from a Rachel Aviv article in The New Yorker in late 2013 called Where Is Your Mother? That piece um, really haunted me. And it's about a, a single mom who left her young right. son at home for a stretch of time. And after that, they never got him back. And I didn't sit down with a pen in, in hand and start thinking like, oh, this could be the spark for uh, my my first novel. It was more that it planted a kernel of rage in my mind and it felt 
so unjust that she never got a second chance. And it felt so unjust that the government was judging her by this certain set of standards that felt impossible to meet. How old was the child? I think maybe around two. But it it was a a very young child. And I mean, certainly anyone who leaves their child at home for any length of time will get in a lot of trouble with the government. Yeah, it's funny because just to like, I, I felt this really conflicting feeling where I felt so sorry for Frida. And yet I also found myself feeling really angry at her. Like, how could you do that? I I intentionally wanted to put readers in a moral gray area because it's a very different story than if she had Harriet in the backseat of a car and she left her wallet on the counter of the dry cleaners and she needed to run back in the store and then the police found her. Like that does happen. And that has almost happened to some of my friends and where it's a, a purely innocent mistake. And I wanted Frida to do something that that would be incredibly problematic and, and maybe dangerous and and to have readers follow that journey and mm-hmm. to follow like a, a truly thorny messy character mm-hmm. at, on on this journey so that because it wasn't I, I didn't want to write just the innocent fighting against the system right exactly I can't tell you how much I love you for that when I was reading it you you mentioned Jasmine about second chances and you know how unjust mm-hmm. it was that the mother in the story never got a second chance and I think society has been telling mothers for a long time that like your maternal instinct should override everything else and that you have this natural beatific eternally good Virgin Mary-esque quality inside. And if you can only tap into it, you will put your children first always, no matter what. And that's how you should be. And that's how motherhood should be. And Frida has all of these pressures on her, your protagonist. You know, she's been she's been left by her husband for this horrible, sparky yoga instructor type. <laughs> who, you know, she's trying to make ends meet financially. She's just struggling. She's not living up to the life that she thought that she should like she's she's not where she wants to be professionally which is an immense pressure especially in light of her upbringing and what is at stake from a family perspective and so all of that she's having a breakdown and in that context can you do something regrettable her child is not harmed like yes she leaves her in an exorcist with some you know her child is not harmed. She's disturbed, but she's completely unharmed. And the so the kind of far-fetched concept that somebody could have come in and kidnapped the child in that time, like, okay, maybe, but it is a moral gray area, very much so. And the idea of a second chance is, you know, the, the desire for a second chance and the idea that the state should have the power to deny that is so fascinating. I was very fired up reading your book mm. and Elena Ferrante and Doris Lessing and some of the, I'm very curious about this professor you mentioned in the book about bad mothers because I'm, or the course rather, because I'm very interested in kind of motherhood in literature. And I wrote kind of a fired up piece in Lit Hub about your book among others, but you know, the- Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> no, I mean, thank you because as a mother, I do think that there can be sometimes a societal concept that like for you, this is all coming so naturally and easily hands down always supersedes absolutely everything and for me it's like actually the gratitude and the complete heart-stopping love and all of the wonderful goodness that comes with motherhood is of course there but so is the rest of your brain and life 
So thank you so much for everything you just said. I'm going to have to like play back on when I'm having a hard writing day and as a boost. But I, I will say for the book that I recommend to everyone who liked The School for Good Mothers and wants to read more on this subject and the book that I wish I had written is Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. I love Night that Bitch. That book is one of my favorites and I think is a, a perfect companion read. It's a great recommendation. Night Bitch goes more in the Kafka direction. Do you think that's fair to say? In the sense of a metamorphosis, and we won't give too much away, but there's a lot of dark humor. I haven't read it yet, so I've just written it down. Actually, it, it relates a bit to Wolf, Monica, um, oh. the film that we talked about in the previous episode in this season about that by filmmaker Natalie Bencary. So okay. uh, yeah, Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder is definitely a good companion read, good call. It's a great title. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant book. They're making it into a movie starring Amy Adams. Okay. And I'm so excited for like a whole a whole new audience to discover Rachel's book. Have you met Rachel? Oh, we so we met back in 2007 at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, but we reconnected because our books were originally supposed to come out at the same time. And then my my pub date got moved and but Rachel did my my Zoom launch event with me. So that was that was a really special time. Amazing. Have you always had a big community of fellow writers or has it been something that's come with this novel or what's your kind of writing friend group like these days? You know, what's funny is that I think in my early 20s, I didn't know many other writers. But at this moment, my my daughter believes that the only job people have is book writer. She thinks everyone <laughs> is a book writer or a film film professor, and she doesn't understand that that people have other occupations. <laughs> but I I am really lucky to have an incredibly supportive, nourishing writing community, and these are friends from grad school and from the Breadloaf Writers Conference. And I mean, is as much as social media has kind of wrecked my brain and concentration in a lot of ways. The plus side of social media is connecting with with a lot of other writers and being part of like the debut author community and also being able to, to chat with readers. Amazing. Guys, do you think he's about to come? Yeah, I think we should do action should stations here. We need to get dressed. We need to get ready. We need to be working on that uh, Nasu Dengeku. Do you think maybe the blue food, Jasmine, should be the dessert? Should we do like a really startling blue cheesecake like a Japanese cheesecake maybe with like a little bit of spirulina you wouldn't taste it but just to make it bright bright blue I love you for these last minute ideas I I feel like I should go to a bakery and ask them to do that rather than giving you more work to do <laughs> but 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 I mean if you're up for it sure it'll help me get my uh, my nerves to a quieter place perfect guys thank you thank you so much Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, 
workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. Thank you so much to Jessamyn Chan for responding to our fangirl DMs and agreeing to come on the podcast. We are so honored. And thanks to Ishiguro for coming on in our imaginations. And for the excellent, thanks to both of them for the excellent books, which we highly recommend you read. We will mm. link to everything in the show notes. Please send us an email, fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. And we would like to thank our producers, Joel Grove and Matt Bentley-Viney. See you in two weeks. See you next time. That's all.